Welcome to the 163rd episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 31 years to the day since Pakistan defeated England to win the World Cup in Melbourne. Welcome to the podcast that always tries to avoid cornering tigers. Now, there's something you should know about the opening lines to these to these podcasts. Usually Andy writes them. Occasionally we get to the, recording the podcast, don't have anything, and spend about three quarters of an hour debating an opening line. And sometimes Andy turns up with opening lines where I have no idea. In fact, I think this is the first time he's turned up with an opening line where I have no idea what he's on, what he's on about. Tigers, Pakistan, World Cup 31 years ago. You're going to have to explain this one. So, this was the moment when Pakistan, struggling at the start of the tournament, Captain Imran Khan rallied the troops and sort of set down a warning sign to everyone else by describing Pakistan as like cornered tigers. Um, and, well, they they came back and England were, I guess, what, what would you describe England as? The unfortunate prey uh, of the cornered tigers. As um, England so often are. Um so coming up in this episode of Reverse Threat Radio, uh, we are going to be telling the remarkable story of Bobby Peel. Um, let's just say urine is involved, or maybe urine isn't involved, in fact. Um, and we're going to be reviewing Cricket 2.0, Inside the T20 Revolution by Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wilde. Um, now, Andy, you've been discovering new places to watch cricket. Yes, so long-time listeners might remember that I have a soft spot for Zimbabwe, having spent some time there growing up. Uh, And I was recently delighted to find myself watching some of their test series against the West Indies, uh, and even more recently, some of their ODIs against the Netherlands. And this is thanks to the ICC TV service, which, as far as I can understand, what it does is just provide free coverage of games when the rights haven't been bought up by any broadcaster in your region. So, you know, no UK broadcaster had bought up Zimbabwe v the West Indies, so ICC TV put it on for free. And I'm sure that there are some people listening who are saying this is, you know, old news to me. So apologies to you. I've, I've, I've been slower on the uptake. Um, And in many ways, the comparison here, I think, is with the county cricket streaming success that we've talked about before. And I know this isn't, uh, some listeners will quite reasonably be saying that, you know, this isn't the big prize. This isn't England on free to air. uh, And I wouldn't dispute that. But what I certainly would say is that so many of cricket's challenges, both in terms of the ongoing health of the game and then growing the game, is about access. And anything that makes the game easier to watch is to be welcomed. Um, and it's a good quality service, from my experience. You know, it, it's a it's a sort of slick streaming platform. So yeah, um, I was I was going to ask how um, it's filmed because often, I mean, I've spent more time than I'd care to admit watching county cricket on you know particularly those YouTube channels that have it where you. Um, um, have perhaps one camera at one end of the game that's you know um, one end of the ground that that captures the action from both ends. Um, with ICC TV, are they kind of syndicating a fully produced broadcast put out by someone that that is going to host broadcasters in other places in the world, or is it more of the kind of lo-fi couple of couple of GoPros and someone editing it on the fly? 
so it's more the former which is is part of the thing so mm. it's, it's a good quality product you know good good commentary team good camera angles replays um it does it does have its eccentricities which i mostly quite enjoy so you, you'll um during breaks you'll just be left often with like a shot of a random bit of the outfield um which for me is perfect because a chunk of watching zimbabwe for me is just pure nostalgia like i enjoy yes. being in harare um, being in harare where i once made um a very elegant four at the uh, at the uh, at the cricket stadium there it's still um, to this day your 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 highest score the other thing that's nice about this is that so often when it comes to tv broadcasting the icc have kind of just left it to the free market and left it to broadcasters to battle it out without any real sense of what's you know good for the game or good for growing the audience more more broadly and this seems to be a rare moment where they've stepped into that that arena to actually make sure that there's some democratization and that they are leading on that rather than as i say just leading it to leaving it to broadcasters to to battle it out definitely and again you know i I don't know what the viewing figures are or what the success is but if if there's anything to look at the success of the county sister county offer if you put it there you will find an audience Um, and i should also just say as an aside some of the cricket's been absolutely great i mean i i don't tend to watch um very much of international ODIs in particular, but um, Zimbabwe and New Zealand, uh, Zimbabwe and the Netherlands have put together a sort of very entertaining little series there. Um, so yes, uh, go go and dig out and see what what what, uh, what latest fare can be found there. Um, now I've been discovering ICC TV. You've been rediscovering um, what I think we can now call a bit of a sort of cricket journalism institution. Absolutely. So. The Night Watchman that we first covered, gosh, it must have been six or seven years ago. Um, it's a periodical from Wisden. They've just started a new weekly newsletter called The Lunch Break, which is what sort of reminded me of their existence. Because whilst I've subscribed since they first existed, the paper copies are sent to my mum's house back in the UK. So I catch up. I kind of collect a suitcase load whenever I go back <laughs> to the um, to the UK. But in between, and then sort of work my way through them over the next few weeks. But in between, I sort of don't really have it all that much on my radar but but the start of their new um, weekly email the lunch break which I do suggest you sign up for reminded me of their existence and also prompted me to make the kind of slightly Luddite um, realization genius realization of course they do exist in the online space as well Um, and so I went and I logged into my account that had been there all along and went on a kind of massive binge of um, lots of back issues and articles from from the night watchman one article that that stood out for me was um, Cameron Ponsonby's uh, reflections on touring Pakistan with the uh, as part of the recent um, England tour and it took me back straight away to the wonderful um, writing of, of Alan Ross particularly those travel logs in the 50s and 60s which are as much about about travel writing as they are about about sports reportage they also have a little bit of the um, I've always loved um, from our own correspondent on on BBC Radio 4 that kind of sense of the sort of behind the scenes lived experience of being and working in a in a foreign in a foreign country um it's a obviously a, a strange and fascinating time to be in Pakistan particularly as a foreign cricket journalist um having to go everywhere with a with an armed guard for instance including going out for dinner having an armed guard sitting at the end of the table and then on the flip side kind of contradicting that um Ponsonby talks about um 
sitting on a motorbike behind a policeman um, but without a helmet and going the wrong way up a one-way street so you know <laughs> safety being paramount in one regard but not in another it's an article that doesn't talk at all about actually the cricket that went on on the pitch but somehow speaks very vitally towards the experience of, of, of touring as well so it's been a really happy um, opportunity I suppose to rediscover rediscover the Night Watchman. And it's articles like this that really it's where it excels, uh, giving writers that space to write about something that, that, that generally other media forms wouldn't have. F- funnily enough, Cameron Ponsonby, this is a good argument for the benefits of Twitter, which I think we often you often wonder what, what they are. Um, I remember a couple of years ago seeing him writing some stuff as like, I think possibly an intern at Wisden. And mm. it was absolutely brilliant. And I've just been so delighted to see, I've read a few of his things now, and I think he, he now gets sort of regular freelance work with top publications. And it's been kind of lovely to see that sort of rise because I, I think I think he's a, a really, really talented writer. Um, and also then nice to see in this context, him giving being given the opportunity to write the kind of piece that he probably wouldn't be able to write for anyone else. And that's another thing that's nice about the Night, Night Watchman is it gives opportunities to writers for writers to do something sort of slightly aside from their regular writing writing gigs. It, it remains a, a real highlight to me whenever it arrives in the post. And actually, it, it's always a highlight, but perhaps it's most so in the winter months. And I think this is probably mm. true for a lot of cricket fans, but... Um, there's something about the Night Watchman winter edition that is mm. particularly evocative, sort of, you know, keeping the, uh, what was the phrase, Keep, keeping the summer flames burning in the, in the darkest, bleak midwinter. From the archives, and in this episode, Toby is going to try to get to the bottom of how the career of Bobby Peel came to an end. So the Yorkshire left-arm spinner Bobby Peel has a pretty unfortunate place in the history books. His bowling average of just under 17 puts him seventh on the all-time test list of bowling averages. His batting average, albeit an unspectacular 20, makes him technically an all-rounder, but he's not remembered for any of that. He's remembered for the legend that Lord Hawke banished him from the field and permanently sacked him from the Yorkshire team after, in August 1897, he urinated on the wicket at Bramall Lane. He was, it should be said, an infamous drunk, or at least a man that had had trouble with alcohol, and this was seen as the last straw in a in, in a, many chapters of, of, of misdemeanours. Now, recently I was watching a report by Jeff Lemon on the recent India-Australia test series, and he made an aside about the fact that possibly the Bobby Peel legend didn't actually live up to the facts of the of the story. And so I spent a bit of time um, digging, digging around to see whether Bobby Peel really deserves this reputation. Now, the context is that 1897 had not been a good year for Bobby Peel. He'd been out for much of the season. Um, He had injured himself uh, while batting, and his first game back was at home to Middlesex. Um, He bowled in the first innings. He took five for 71, so he's a man rapidly back into his, his stride. And to cut a long story short, on the final day of the game, Yorkshire declare they leave Middlesex needing an improbable 302 to win in one session. This is where things get um, a little bit murky, um, and so I do need to credit the excellent um, old Ebor blog uh, by Giles Wilcock for piecing together particularly a lot of the um, old newspaper reports around this. So 
If you look at the newspaper reports, they all notice that in the final session of the game, Peel's captain, the Yorkshire captain, Lord Hawke, left the field at one point. Now, Peel later admitted that he had slipped over twice while fielding, but later he blamed it on the state of his, his boots. The reporters who were at the game um, say that he was, quotes, not bowling with his usual accuracy. I think uh, that phrase, and we're going to get more and more into that, just does already read with that kind of it's that sort of euphemism that mm. journalists have um used down the ages haven't they around yeah. uh, just to not uh, to, to try to hint but while you know maybe trying to respect as well um the state of the boots thing is really interesting because um we're, we're obviously going to try to you're going to pull apart um truth and fiction here but up front it's quite plausible isn't it I mean that that is something that we've seen that it, it's not it's not totally unheard of for a cricketer to have real problems with their with their spike so it's well, in, in he, itself it's not totally implausible no not at all and he actually showed the boots to a reporter and supposedly a couple of the sort of studs on the bottom were, were missing and they were in a fairly in a fairly tatty state and you know we've all been in a position where we've slipped over on our asses on a, on a cricket pitch whilst <laughs> whilst whilst fielding so why should it not happen to, to, to good old Bobby Peel as well now talking of euphemism um, the next day there were two newspapers that, that carried news of Peel's suspension one went no further than to say that there was, quote, grave dissatisfaction with Peel. And the other one referred to a, quote, unpleasant incident and said that Peel was, this is a wonderful euphemism, quotes, unable to do himself justice. I mean, we've all found ourselves in situations where we've been unable to do ourselves justice. So it seems that when Lord Hawke, I, I mentioned that Lord Hawke left the pitch on that, um, on that, in that last session, it seems that there was a hasty committee meeting. He got together in the pavilion all the Yorkshire committee members he could find. And at that meeting, in the middle of the last session, it was resolved to suspend Peel. Looking at the committee members, we have our first mention of the specifics, and and the the, the minute in the in the in the committee notes says to consider the conduct of R. Peel in presenting himself on the field in a state of intoxication. It was resolved to suspend him for the remainder of the season. So this is the first mention we have directly of alcohol. Now the next day, I should say that that minute was only made public, you know, a, a long time after the fact. So the next day, the lead stadium out doorsteps appeal to get his side of the of the story whilst the other newspapers as we've seen have been very circumspect about mentioning alcohol peel was very happy to give a pretty unvarnished account of what had happened and he said this before i went on the ground at sheffield i don't blush to say it i had two small glasses of gin and water at luncheon time i had nothing at 20 minutes past two Heyman and warner opened the innings for middlesex mr jackson and i began the bowling when I had been bowling about half an hour, I was taken off and followed by Mr. Milligan. So he sort of, you know, in, in his account, he makes no connection between the, the gin and water for breakfast and being taken off bowling after lunch. And obviously it would be hard to do a kind of analysis of every player's uh, pre- and lunchtime drinking habits at the time. But I read this and instinctively... I it, it it felt again pretty plausible to me. I don't know. I feel I've read enough cricket history writing that involved you know a player having a a bracing you know something to get them going um, before we get. But may, may, maybe I'm being overly indulgent. And well, maybe I'm being, I mean, you look it, at sorry, you go. 
no but, 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 but may, maybe i'm being overly indulgent or per, but perhaps you know th- th- there's there's nothing about this that struck me as sort of outlandish for the time and you for instance read accounts of both them going and having dozens of pints the night before you know going and bowling 20 overs in a test match and in a way i reckon that i would be more unable to do justice to myself with a cracking hangover than i would with a couple of shots of gin for for breakfast maybe this is an experiment that we need to go and find out well, I was actually what's actually say, worse have you played because I, I i think i can say hand on heart i don't think I, i've certainly played with a hangover I don't think I've ever played. Have I ever played post a drink? I don't think I have. I think the I've, game I've is played complicated after enough to do. To do, it's complicated enough without having had a beer beforehand. What What about you? Yeah, I've I've played after a few beers, and my abiding memory was um, my judgment of a quick single <laughs> was uh, was significantly impaired. And I remember taking some what I at the time thought were some very nifty singles before my captain had to come and tell me that I was just on a kamikaze raid to run out the whole team. Um, you know, I, I play a defensive shot straight back to the bowler and insist that there was a that there was a single to be stolen at that moment. So there was a bit of bravado. Luckily, I didn't I didn't bowl. Um, but anyway, l- less about me, more about Bobby Peel. I think at this point. Um, so, <laughs> in this conversation with the reporter, he admits he has gin for breakfast. Um, he says at the end of the day's play. Um, that there were several people who who saw him sober. He says that um, the slipping over was because of his boots, as we've already talked about, and and that also that no Yorkshire official had actually given him an explanation beyond telling him that he was suspended for the rest of the the season. Um, Peel did have previous when it came to came to alcohol. Um, I mean, we've just heard him admit that he had had gin for for breakfast. Um, there is also another account of this incident where. George Hurst, his Yorkshire teammate, on the morning of that of that day of cricket, tried to persuade him not to come to the ground because George Hurst had, had found him so drunk in his in his hotel room, and that Peel had turned up anyway, was given the ball and had bowled it. Had kind of turned around and rather than bowling it down the wicket, had bowled it at the side screen. So had kind of bowled it in the other in the other direction. This account has been disputed, and it does sound a bit too outlandish to be true i mean actually bowling deliberately in the wrong direction i mean you'd have to be pretty damn i don't i don't know if you'd be able to stand up if you were um again this is all stuff that we need to take it upon ourselves to to do a a real life experiment towards but um it does it does seem slightly slightly implausible i think there's something underlying all of this which is this kind of um post-victorian edwardian attitude towards alcohol where you know there were certainly many people who were alcoholics and had problems with with alcohol, but it it kind of wasn't talked about, um, and therefore became very difficult to be dealt with. And so all of these euphemisms that surrounded it from the press, euphemisms also from the Yorkshire Committee in terms of not actually saying to Bobby Peel, you know, it's your alcohol that is is kind of caused a um, caused a problem here. All of this kind of prudishness meant that when things went wrong around alcohol, they kind of went really wrong. It also seems to have what you could say has sometimes been a problem in the modern game where, you know, authorities come down on it very hard when it becomes an issue, but it's no, there's no real evidence that there's the support beforehand. Yes. Um, perhaps because of exactly what you're saying, that sort of, um, uh, well, I suppose slight hypocrisy between um, in, in attitudes towards it. Yeah, and if he had bowled fine and hadn't slipped over, would anyone be talking to him? Have been talking to him about having those gins for breakfast? Probably not. It's only because it, you know, affected his cricket in that way. So, 
this all comes back to this question of the the central question of did he urinate on the wicket, which is, is, is a sentence I've always wanted to say in in the Reverse Threat Radio podcast. Um, so it turns out that this part of the story comes from an anonymous Yorkshireman, seventy one years later, who claimed to have been on the ground as a fourteen year old and at the age of eighty five kind of piped up with this anecdote. While we'll never know exactly what happened on the pitch that day, it's it's pretty hard to take this single account so long after the fact as the kind of headline um, of both this incident and also Bobby Peel's um, career as a whole. I think the the conclusion has to be that, you know, was he pissed at the wicket? Most probably. Did he piss on the wicket? I think probably not. <laughs> The review. Um, we've been reading Cricket 2.0 Inside the T20 Revolution by Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wilde. It was published in 2019. Um, Tim Wigmore is a cricket journalist at the Daily Telegraph. Freddie Wilde um, was a journalist but is now England's head analyst for limited overs cricket. And Cricket 2.0 is all about the rise of T20 cricket and the impact that it's had overall on, on, on cricket. Um Andy, 2019 is a long time ago when it comes to 2020 cricket. Um, given that, for a book that's very much focused around analysis of, of statistics and the science of, of T20, does this does this still stand up? The short answer is yes, um, but I absolutely shared that concern when we chose this as a re- book to review. As listeners to the podcast will know, our attitude to what we pick is pretty uh, pretty eccentric in that we're not too worried about you know reviewing the latest thing we kind of review whatever we think is interesting and and, and valuable at the, at the time so but i did wonder whether this would be one where that you felt that that difference in time um, but it says something about the perceptiveness of the analysis that it, it still felt very current today. And perhaps it says something about my ignorance that I still felt I was learning huge amounts mm. for the first time. So unsurprisingly, given Freddie Wilde's new job, the book has a real emphasis on taking a scientific approach, which I think we forget now, given that more and more cricket writers are trying it. I think it was very innovative at the time. To give you an example, there's the use of statistics. So we talk about uh, in the book the Tiger Woods effect, which I'd never come across. This idea that Tiger Woods' opponents played worse, even though he had no direct you know, way of influencing that. And we have that applied to Chris Gale. So the fact that he receives twice as many mm. wides as the as the average batter. Um, yes, what, what did you sort of make of that kind of style of... I guess, yeah, style of writing, style of approaching the issue. Well, they they, they make the interesting case that um, 2020 cricket actually fast-forwarded the use of, use of stats um, in cricket and that actually no one had really paid attention to stats to that extent until 2020 came along. To the extent that I can't remember who it is that says it, but basically says... You know, test cricket, you don't really need to have all that much of a, of a game plan. Whereas with 2020, every single ball, you have a plan for what you're going to what you're going to do, do with it. Um, I thought it was fascinating the way they unpick how statistics are used, but also how you choose the right statistics to pay attention to. Um, for instance, you know, what's important isn't that a bowler gets hit for six is what they do after they get hit for six, given inevitably in T20, all bowlers are going to get hit for six. And so there's a lot of work that's been done around how bowlers follow up getting hit for um hit for runs also um 
Sun El Noreen, that kind of amazing story of the of the hugely successful move to him being an opener from being number eight, but the way that the statistics points out the really obvious thing that at number eight you rarely get a bat in 2020 cricket. And so actually moving a number eight up to open, if they get out cheaply, then it actually is not causing you any disadvantage whatsoever but if they make a quick 30 off 10 balls then you're actually you know ahead of the game um, immediately so what I thought was really interesting is the way they showed in in real terms how the use of data can actually change the way a team plays and that therefore you know improve the success of those those teams as well. But I think one thing I would not want any listener to go away with is the idea that this is in any way dry. You know, it's used very well. And I mean, I also enjoyed, um, there's not just statistics, there's also use of psychology. I loved um, this assessment from the psychologist Gerd Gigarenza. Um, this is talking about why bat- teams can be overcautious in their use of certain batters and his hard to dispute assessment that humans don't always make optimal decisions but make decisions to cover their ass which I just I'm going to use that more often as a phrase um, and there's great storytelling too and, and I think this, this book this book would work if it was you know here's an interesting statistic here's an interesting statistic but it works so much better for these great stories um one chapter begins with surav ganguly um nicknamed in india the prince being ignored at an ipl Mm. auction um it's a wonderful scene um but it's also a great way of bringing forward the point that wigmore and wild want to make about um how the game had moved on how the game you know analysis had left players like ganguly behind but, but also the fact that it was a fundamentally different game from test cricket and this is the point they make time and time again that this idea that t20 cricket is just just a slog or it's a sort of quicker version of one day cricket they say actually all of that goes out of the window it's a it's a completely different game and they make a very compelling case for that i think talking of the the storytelling that you mentioned one thing they do very effectively is to take little mini narratives within particularly the early development of 2020 and use them as examples there's you know they contribute towards the development of the game but they're also examples about what makes 2020 unique so they spent a uh, spend a lot of time looking at leicestershire and their amazing early success you know from a team that wasn't terribly successful and certainly wasn't very starry they set out to play 2020 in a really canny way and on the back of that had a huge amount of success and they spent a long time kind of dissecting exactly what that was and through that it was just interesting to read that narrative and that story but also through that i felt like i kind of learned actually a lot about the ingredients that make a 2020 team work it's one it's a fantastic sort of recurrent theme here and i could almost see this being used by sort of businesses and organizations as a sort of um yeah, kind of organizational psychology piece you know a well-run small team beats a badly run big team we have that mm. in the their descriptions of the ipl and the chennai super kings outwitting yes. royal challengers bangalore i think it is and you know just the, these teams that are one a run with savvy um the, the, your point about it being a different sport a, a lot of, there's a lot of talk about specific innovations from whether it be the bowlers um batters but one really stuck with me that i, I think uh, is just extraordinary is the leicestershire bowler jeremy snape walking yes. backwards to his mark to pick up any clues um which i just thought was absolutely fascinating and i confess i i, I wasn't aware of mm, um, an interesting reading about you know for instance um joss butler talking about the ramp and his kind of range of ramp shots and suddenly the idea that you have to be able to score 
around sort of 360 degrees of the of the ground and the way that he had played that shot before but that suddenly t20 had absolutely accelerated that innovation and the way that it's kind of become the the crucible for so much that's being moved forward in in cricket as well your reference to Joss Butler reminds me we, we should mention the fact they have got in, impeccable contacts here you know they have vast mm. use of interview material and quotes and I should say for the most part very well used like you know there's the odd quote where you're a bit like okay you know this is it's slightly anodyne but for the most part sort of very well chosen and well used they go beyond the cricket on the field so uh, for me personally that's probably where I enjoyed it the most and found it most interesting but they also do you know very interesting analysis on the wider system so I was very struck by the fact that most new t20 leagues lose money at the start and actually in many cases lose money for years um and i confess i I slightly missed that in all the hype around Mm. t20 um i think i'd slightly fallen for the thing that you know this is just one big kind of money-making machine and the fact that uh, you know actually these new leagues are basically very speculative investments um they're like startups exactly like that yeah exactly and i think it also has really interesting consequences when we're now thinking about the calendar at how yeah exactly how do you structure a calendar in a world of in a world of startups mm. um, i was fascinated by the chapter on um betting and and cheating um which is always something that to be honest i mean we've read a couple of books on it that we reviewed but i always struggle to quite understand how spot fixing works to be perfectly honest i'd be i'd be useless at making my millions in that way um but it makes it sets out why exactly it is that that t20 is so compelling and attractive and lucrative um in this regard as well and this amazing stat that um i think on betfair alone 34.8 million pounds is bet on every afghan premier league game which is five times as much as a standard as a standard test match and suddenly there's just this enormous market for money and the impact that's and this was the most interesting thing i think was the impact that then has on the players who are constantly subject to people basically preying on them to try and make money out of them and you suddenly realize that it's not just players being greedy it's the fact that they are you know seen by these criminals essentially as being um as being targets and they have really canny ways of targeting them you know including asking them to do completely what seemed like completely innocent things but that turn out to be part of spot fixing and then that becomes something they can then blackmail them over and get them to do kind of bigger and bigger things and it just yeah i suppose that um really kind of brought home for me the position that a lot of the you know the players are put on when they're suddenly put into this cauldron of with enormous amounts of money sloshing around and i think it's really important because you know you could write you could uh, someone who's trying to take a critical view could could see wild and wig more slightly as kind of unthinking evangelists for the 2020 game and i think it's really important that they are willing mm-hmm. to show the challenges and you know the, the dark side of it um so that was cricket 2.0 as we said published three years ago but stands up extremely well today I have to say we were exchanging messages earlier in the week about how we we're both enjoying it um, and I've always been you know I've, I've never been a Luddite on T20 I enjoy T20 you know probably would rather watch a test match but I do enjoy it but honestly one, one takeaway from this is that it honestly did make me very tempted to go and give the um give aspects of the IPL a, a, another go so we'll we'll see if that see if that happens yeah it definitely I have to say it is it definitely has changed my perspective on 
2020 cricket more broadly um i think in terms in terms of the book i think it's a thoroughly recommended read for that reason there is a lot in it in trying to read it over the course of three weeks um i there were times when i felt a degree of fatigue but i think that's because it's not probably not designed to be read in that kind of um, intense way it's got it's got an awful lot in it Yes, I should say, I mean, yes, being sort of balanced on it, I should say there there are a couple of sort of minor editing fails where you feel that a single a story that you've read before is then repeated again and again in other chapters. But that is a sort of um, a modest quibble. But I, I would agree with you, there's there's probably a lot to be said for, for picking this up on a sort of essay by essay format. So that's Cricket 2.0. And this was Reverse Rip Radio, episode 163.